This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. I never intended being a writer. I wanted to be outdoors. I wanted to be, you know, riding around on a horse or being at the beach, you know. Brett Lott has had the kind of success that most writers dream about. He's published more than a dozen books. He served as the editor of the Southern Review, a well-respected literary journal. He's been honored by presidents, served on the National Council for the Arts, and in 1998, his novel Jewel was selected by Oprah Winfrey for her book club. My editor called me up that night. She said, Brett, do you understand what this means? You have an instant classic. An instant classic. I mean, it's like, what does that even mean, an instant classic? But it's not, it did really well. It became an international bestseller. It's so weird to say that. But it was. And uh, I mean, I, I remember being in airports and seeing people walk around with it in their hands. I always want to run them, hey, do, do, you, do you like know my mom? From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, my guest is the novelist Brett Locke. You'll hear him tell that story and many more. You'll hear about the relationship between his faith and his writing. He'll talk about his daily routines and the challenges he sees for Christians in the writing world. And on that topic, some of his answers might surprise you. So stay with us. I grew up in California and Arizona. I, I look back on Arizona as really, really formative for me and my uh, love of the outdoors and just being out and in God's creation. But I also think of California lovingly when I was a little kid and we drove through tomato fields to get to the beach in Huntington Beach. And now Huntington Beach is this weird place that we never moved back to. I'd been in Boy Scouts all through my uh, years in Phoenix. Um, it was the greatest troop ever. We went backpacking once a month for 12 months a year. And uh, I just loved the outdoors so that when I went to college, I wanted to be a park ranger. So I went to Northern Arizona University, got into the forestry program there. The, the forestry program was, in fact, forestry. It wasn't forest ranger stuff. It was figuring out forest yield and management. Instead of riding on a horse, and telling people to be careful of that fire. That's seriously what I wanted to do. I wanted to ride on a horse in a park. So I quit that and came back to Southern California, went to Cal State Long Beach and was a marine biology major and didn't give any serious thought whatsoever to what I was going to do. It's simply that I wanted to go to the beach. That's what I was a marine biology major for. I had a physics course where you had to have a C or better in order to continue in that major. I got a D. And despite how much I studied, I, was, I studied my brains out and then I even slept with the book under under my pillow one night before the test, thinking maybe this will help. <laughs> but I still got a D. So uh, I quit college, and uh, my dad said, hey, just come work for R.C. Cola. His dad had worked for R.C. Cola for his entire career, climbing his way up from being a truck driver and into management. Did that for a year and um, realized that I do not want to work for R.C. Cola the rest of my life. And I decided I wanted to go back to the university just to figure something out. And so I became an education major and a student taught at Marina High School in Orange County for a semester. And I said, there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm not teaching high school. 
This is work. That was work, man. Around that time, he took his first creative writing class, and something clicked for him. I had Tuesday night free. The only class open on Tuesday was a creative writing class. So I took that class. I did dreadfully. Uh, I wrote terribly. But I enjoyed it. I took another creative writing class. One day, the professor came into class and read a sentence from my short story and said, that's a writer's sentence. And I remember thinking, that felt really nice. While all of this was going on, he was waking up to his faith. I came to faith when I was at Northern Arizona University. I had gone to church my whole life. I just did it because that was just the routine until Josh McDowell came through and did a rally for three days. And what I saw that night that, that I attended was the enmeshing of the head, which knew what was going on, and the heart, which finally understood the truth of this and the depth to which uh, one is called and the depth from which one is saved. And uh, it took. And uh, before I was ever going to be a writer, I was a, a believer first. And I think that's been very important to me as my identity going into the whole thing. There's a quarter moon that knows the hours I'm keeping And a glittered highway is showing back its light There's a baby at home in my room sleeping And a woman that won't be Eventually, he graduated with an English degree and enrolled in a graduate program for writers called a Master's in Fine Arts, or an MFA. My first semester of grad school in the MFA program, I was systematically disemboweled every time I turned something in. Everybody just, everybody hated everything I wrote. And I'm not just, that's not just what was me. It was so bad that at the end of the semester, last meeting, the professor uh, says, hey, everybody, great semester, seen in spring. Brett, come with me. <laughs> he really did, and took me to his office, and uh, he sat me down. And he said, Brett, I see no reason why you shouldn't be in our program, but I see no reason why you should. And I was writing horribly. I had this preconception about being a writer that writing was about, look at what a good writer I am. Here again, he was tempted to change course, to walk away from the graduate program. But a series of events kept him going, and eventually it changed the way he thought about writing. One night, uh, a woman came to class to workshop and said, anybody want to read manuscripts for plowshares? And I said, yeah, I will. Plowshares, by the way, is sort of a big deal literary magazine. And then, you know, I was just some punk not those kid. So I volunteered, and what it meant was for the whole semester, I was reading hundreds of manuscripts that were at the bottom of the barrel manuscripts, stuff that nobody wanted to read because they were from nobody. So, And they were really bad. Don't let anybody kid you. There's a lot of bad writing out there. Then that same semester, I read Raymond Carver, who... Everybody worships at the altar of Raymond Carver, but I don't mind, except that I know I'm not worshiping him. It's just, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, you listeners. But I read uh, what we talk about when we talk about love, which were these stories that were just crystal clear. The characters had deep things. They were deeply at stake in the story, and the characters were what mattered. And the writing of it was so spare and clear that I realized, this isn't about me. This is about the people. It's about the people in the story. That's what matters. So these three things came together where I read the worst stories in my life I'd ever read. And I read the best stories I'd ever read, Raymond Carver. And then my professor said to me, you're neither here nor there. And um, I wanted to go home. I went and told Melanie we'd gotten married between my junior and senior year at Cal State. And um, I said, let's go home. And she said, no, we're going to stay another semester. We came all the way from Los Angeles to here. So let's spend the first year. I said, okay. And I sat down and I wrote what I think is the first real story I ever wrote. And what I realized was I got to get me out of the way. I'm the last person I need to listen to. I don't need to listen to me. 
I'm the people in the story are what mattered. Now the story was about me and my older brother and an episode when we were punk kids about a babysitter and and um, that which was true. But then the the back half of the story as well, given what really happened, what would happen if this happened. And I kind of realized that sort of story is you take who you are, where you've been, what you've done, and then ask yourself, well, what if that? So I had this kind of, I realized there's a kind of authority bound up in using your own life, uh, but your imagination has this giant role to say, well, given that, what if this? And I um, wrote that first story, and I, I, I wrote it as clearly as I could because I was writing about something that mattered to me, and uh, not as a writer, but as a person. And um, it was a su successful story. I brought it to workshop, and people kind of sat up and took some notice. I later published it in uh, one of my story collections. Later on, later on, I sat on it for a long time because I didn't have a great deal of faith on it. Because the next semester, things really started to really started to kick in. After that, Brett began teaching and publishing stories, then novels. And along the way, he built his writing life around a pretty regimented daily routine. There's a reason why the guy, the baseball player, the pitcher, who's pulling down $17 million a year, you know, wears this beat-up ball cap with sweat and everything. It's because that's the cap that he wore the one time he had a no-hitter. So it's not superstition. He's, he's literally getting his head on straight before he goes and he's remembering what it was like to do that. It's the same thing each day, to sit and remember where the story is, remember these people, remember the pitch and tone and, um, you know, to pick up from there each day. I, I have a very definite routine. I have to be wearing my pajamas, which is basketball shorts and a T-shirt. I have to be wearing my smart wool socks. I get up, I make my pot of coffee and take it upstairs, and then I, I spend time first praying, and then I sit down and go through what I've written the day before. I put on my headphones, I listen to music. Each book that I write has a kind of soundtrack to it. It's a different collection of tunes that I play relentlessly. By the time I'm done with a novel, I will have listened to You know, I had a little playlist. How many times you've listened to this? It's like 989 times. And then while I'm doing that, I'm going through what I've written the day before. And then, you know, kind of ease into the language, getting into the story and seeing what's happening. My coffee mug has got to be the same coffee mug. All this stuff that looks like superstition, but in trying to control the things that I can control because the creative element thing is so brittle that I can't control that thing. Have you all, I mean, have you always kind of done it that way? Like Always. Always that? Always. Pretty ritualistic. When I was, when I was an undergrad, I do remember staying up late and trying to write at night. And uh, then when I got to UMass, to, to uh, the MFA program, I just realized that's, that's dumb. There's a reason you sleep. Your, your brain is a battery. It's got to be recharged. And so why are you trying to create something of any merit on a rundown battery? Right. And so, you know. Most of the writers who wrote all night were chemically assisted, probably. That's, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I think for a lot of people, they're intimidated by literary fiction I would love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of the difference between sort of literary fiction and the... You mean the stuff that people read and buy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> First they buy it, then they read it. Right, right. You know, there's your difference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm being cynical. I don't mean to be cynical. What John Gardner says, you know, in like, I think it's in Becoming a Novelist, yeah. he says, anybody can write badly and you can probably sell a lot of books writing badly, yeah. but making good art, it's this double-edged sword. It's really, really hard, and it's less likely to sell. Mm -hmm. um, 
So why do it? So why why do you do it? I don't know what else to do. I, my wife and I have had this conversation so many times. I, it's like, why don't I just write something trashy and make some money? And when she says, you don't have it in you. you just, you're not that person. And um, the older I get, the, the less and less I poo-poo these things. You know, it's like, if that's what you want to do. You're, you've got every right to do this. But going back to what the difference is, the difference is I think that what most people want is they want to read a book that lets them escape. It gives them a, a break from their own lives. And I think a lot of literary fiction basically says, well, here's your life. And people don't really necessarily want that. They want to find adventure and, and horror and suspense and espionage and, and live lives larger. Literary fiction is, is oftentimes holding a mirror up to yourself and, and looking at yourself and making you reconcile yourself to who you are. And I think that's, that's basically what I write. Uh, I want, though, that I, what I want is the, the blend of a really good story, but also something that is a character, a, a strong character, and something that will make you think about yourself, reconcile yourself to yourself. Too many times rumination kind of rules the day. People ask me, what are your books about? People always want to know what your book's about. And I say, well, basically my books are about a husband and wife standing in the kitchen thinking about things. <laughs> but you know what? There's a lot of husbands and wives standing in kitchens thinking about things. And, uh, and that's not my plots, but, but, you know, boiled down, that's what it is. It's not about escapades on the French Riviera. In 1991, Brett published a novel called Jewel, which was loosely based on the story of his grandmother. The book reviewed and sold pretty well, as his books tended to, and he just went on with his life. But then seven years later, in 1998, he got a phone call that kind of changed everything. I had just finished my next novel, the, the ninth book. I had finished a book, I published a book called The Hunt Club that year, and it did really well. It did better than Jewel did the first time around. And the publisher, Random House, asked me to write a sequel of it. So I'd spent the whole year, 1998, writing a sequel to The Hunt Club. And it was awful. It was terrible. And then I had given it to my my agent. This is in early, early January, like January 2nd or something like this. And I remember being up in Vermont and having a conversation with her on the phone this morning. And uh, for three hours, we talked about what a rotten book it was. I didn't know what we are going to do. I already spent the advance. It was long gone. And um, spent three hours talking about what a wreck this thing was. And then went to lunch and... Um, one of the students didn't show up at lunch. He was a student that I had just spent the semester working with. He's 51 years old, and uh, and he was a good writer. He had been published in uh, Best American Stories like when he was 24, 25, and he decided he wanted to go into advertising and put it off and put it off, and finally was going back to writing. He was a good writer. One of the students who realized he hadn't seen him at breakfast either, and so they went to his room, knocked on his door, his dorm room, and nobody answered. They got secured, and they opened it up, and he'd passed away. He'd had a brain aneurysm. And, he was reading one of my novels. He, you know, you have an aneurysm, just gonna fall over. And he was had one of my books that he was reading. I had spent all that day, that morning, three hours talking about, oh my book, my book, my book, and then this guy died, and I realized, what is a book? A book doesn't matter. We're we're grass. It's gonna wither. We're gonna pass. And he was only fifty-one. 
I went over to the uh, administrator's office, the director of the program, and I manned the phones for her while she and the chair of the department had meetings. It was like nobody had ever died before. And uh, the phone rang at about four in the afternoon. It was getting cold and dark outside. The guy said, can I speak to Louise Crowley? Okay, Louise was the director. And uh, I asked Louise, and she said, yeah, I can take it. So she took the phone and said, you were just talking to him. And she looked at me, handed it to me, and the guy goes, this is Brett Lott? I said, yeah. He said, my boss, I'm calling from Chicago. My boss wants to talk to you about a project she's working on. Can you hold? And I said, okay. And, you know, he put me on hold, and there's this music, and I only later realized it's I'm Every Woman, you know, Shaka Khan, which was her theme song at this particular moment. And then the phones, you know, I hear this click, and then a woman yells, Brett, this is Oprah. We're going to have so much fun. And this was all on, on, on one day, in one day. And it was the, the worry and grief over a, a book that I'd written that did not work. And then the realize, realization that a book doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. It, your life is what matters and how you lived it. And then Oprah calls up and just bestows, you know, through the glory of God, the greatest blessing I've ever had in my writing life. And uh, as a believer, I really, I thought it was a joke. I yelled at her, is this a joke? Is this a joke? And she said, no, she thought that was hilarious. And, uh, you know, we talked for minutes, a couple minutes. I don't know what we're talking about. We just kind of talked. And then I got off the phone and Louis said, was that her? And I said, I can't tell you, it's a secret. I'm not supposed to say anything. And I just just started crying as I was looking out on this field and it was dark and the sky was getting dark and it was just beautiful. And suddenly everything, everything fell into place in terms of my being humbled. And I don't mean that guy had to die for me to be humble, but all our time is, is relegated by dad. God, he's, he's, when we die, he knows the hairs on our head. You know? So whatever... God is working out through Jim Ferry, the, the man who died, whatever was working there. The ripple out from that was hitting me with the realization the book doesn't mean anything. And this is an incredible blessing, and what am I going to do with it? And what I did is, uh, one thing I did was I, I wrote uh, Jim Ferry's name on an index card. And I put it in my pocket, and the whole time that I was the Oprah guy, as long as I was wearing pants, I had this guy's card in my pocket, so I put my hand in my pocket and I remember Jim Ferry, Jim Ferry, Jim Ferry, this is, you know, an absolutely humbling event that has happened to you. And that's how God works, and I, you know, I count it as a great blessing. I don't count his death as a blessing. I don't mean it that way, but I mean God works in all things, always. When uh, I was getting ready to go on the show, I realized, man, I got to reread this book. I can't remember everything about this book. So somebody's gonna ask me a question on their show and I'm gonna have some dumb look on my face. What are you talking about? So I had to reread the book and um, reorient myself to a book that had been written, you know, four, no, six years, seven years before. Uh, so it was it was interesting. And the, the, the strange thing as a writer was, it was the exact same book. There were There was not a single word different. Then this thing happened and it became this this international deal, and the words were the exact same words that I had already written. And so what you realize is there's, there's powers beyond you that wield influence in the world. Especially if they're named Oprah. That's right.
So the thing I always wonder in a situation like that is, after that experience, what's it like to sit down and start the next Very book? Hard. Yeah. Very hard. Very yeah. hard. I had been this guy for eight books that had been publishing, and I'd been respected for all eight books that I'd published were in, in the, the Times Book Review. And so I was, I was basically what's called a mid-list writer, and I kind of reconciled myself to that. But then all of a sudden, I would be, had become this bestseller, and it was very hard to sit down and think about just being who I am. In my mind, there was like this imagined reader out there waiting for me to, to write a book. And that's not true. I mean, there's nobody sitting there waiting at the doors of Barnes & Noble. You know, hey, you, what time are you guys opening? You got a new Brett Lapogerda. Where is it? But there is this, this sense that people are looking at, you know. And so it was very hard to write that next one. It took longer than any other of the books. It took about two and a half years to write that one. Brett has spent most of his writing life in spaces where, as an evangelical, Bible-believing Christian, he's a bit of an outlier. As a professor, he's taught in liberal arts departments, which tend to be pretty progressive spaces. As a novelist, his books aren't likely to be found in Christian bookstores. Instead, you'll find them in Barnes & Noble, and you'll see them in the New York Times Book Review. I asked Brett what it's been like to live in these spaces, what kind of pressures he's experienced, and why we might not see many Christians there. I've certainly had things happen where I'm not going to go into details, but I've, I've had things happen where, because I'm a Christian, I'm distrusted. And the, the whole idea of academia is this. You're the smartest guy in the room, and you went to college, man. You got your bachelor's, you got your MA, you got your PhD. You are the man. You're the king of uh, the particular little quadrant of the universe that you've mapped out and want to be the king of. And so you have a whole... Man, I'm getting in trouble for saying this, you know, but, but you have a whole campus full of kings marching around. And my king is not me, and that bothers people because what it says to you, who are saying you're the king, is, you know what, I don't believe you're the king either. And that and it really, you know, makes some people angry. So there, there is that. Now, on the other hand, I have not had many problems because, and I don't know how this is going to sound, but if you have the chops, if you do what you do well, and for me, I don't do it for my glory, I do it for the glory of God, but I do a good job doing what I do, then you have the chops, and then you have a kind of respect that people will have. But if you hide behind being a Christian as your, you know, why I'm getting, you know, not getting tenure or I'm not, I'm not getting published in that journal or this sort of thing, uh, then you've got a problem on your hands. Which is why, you know, I'm going to be in all kinds of trouble, but, you know, it's trouble for the Lord. I don't care. <laughs> but uh, but um, a lot of people grouse about Christian writing who are Christians who don't get the, you know, the notoriety or the publish, publishing in there. People who, who blame you know, their lack of success on the world being against Christians. What people aren't recognizing is you're not doing it well enough. These are bold words, and they might sting a bit. It's actually a little easier to think that Christians might be marginalized for their biases rather than the fact that their work doesn't hold up. And yet, in Brett's life, you see someone with total devotion to the craft of writing, to simply showing up every day, every morning, and facing the empty pages armed only with a pot of coffee. That devotion leads to the quality of his work and has led to recognition from the literary world, glowing reviews, his post at the Southern Review, and a variety of awards and honors. And yet what's so admirable about Brett's story is how quick he is to say this. What is a book? A book doesn't matter. We're, we're grass. It's going to wither. We're going to pass. There's actually no contradiction between Brett's devotion to the work and how quickly he's able to say that a book means nothing. It's a perspective that sees work in the light of God's kingdom and Christ's finished work. 
His life is a great example of what James Davison Hunter calls faithful presence, a call for Christians to focus on meaningful and excellent work, on participation in cultural institutions, and on contributions to the common good. Hunter writes, quote, If there are benevolent consequences to our engagement with the world, it's precisely because it is not rooted in a desire to change the world for the better, but rather because it's an expression of a desire to honor the creator of all goodness, beauty, and truth, a manifestation of our loving obedience to God and a fulfillment of God's command to love our neighbor. You can see this in Brett's life, a devotion to the goodness, beauty, and truth of his work, all held loosely in the light of the kingdom of God. In his book, Letters in Life, which is part memoir, part writing advice, Brett writes this, You've heard from me no words about what we ought to do tomorrow to affect change in the public sphere through our roles as believing artists. You've read here no reports from Washington, where I serve on the National Council on the Arts, a committee that oversees the National Endowment for the Arts, to make sure that the money you pay in taxes that the government sets aside for the arts is spent wisely. And you've heard from me no call to political action or to proselytizing or to wearing wristbands with the initials WWJW, what would Jesus write? I know who I am is our relationship to the public sphere. And because of who we are, creations of the one true creator God, my only call to you as artists striving to create in harmony with God's order is to create and to do so in order to live lives that are blessings in themselves. I love this. I love the idea that I know who I am is the starting place of our participation in culture. It's a perspective that can shape all of our work, whether we're working a line in a manufacturing plant, starting a business, or writing and teaching. I know who I am, and I belong to Jesus. Now, I have to admit, there's one thing on this episode that disappoints me. I I love you, Brett, but your Oprah impersonation really left me wanting, and I wanted to see if we could do any better. So I'm at a, a trunk or treat right now going around, and we're going to see if we can get some better Oprah performances than, than Brett's. Nothing wrong with Brett, of course, but his Oprah was lousy. Do you do an Oprah impersonation? Do I? Can you do Oprah? Oh, not really. It's, it's just one line. It's just, we're going to have so much fun. What is she? We're going to have so much fun. Is that right? That, that was legit. That was good. Right. Well done. I knew you'd come through. We're gonna have so much fun! Fan the fire jugglers, they're always here. My family runs a gymnastic circus, and uh, so my mom and my sister used to eat fire in it. That can't be true. It's absolutely, the Lord is my witness true. So what you're telling me is that you're a carnage. A heart, you're a carnage. A little bit. A little bit. All right, so Oprah, so it's one line, and it's just, we're gonna have so much fun. We're gonna have so much fun! A solid, a solid, a solid B minus. <laughs> Can you do an Oprah impersonation? An Oprah impersonation? It's, it's one oh, line. Sure. It's just one line. Okay. It's, uh, we're going to have so much fun. Okay. You ready? That was a horrible sound you just made. <laughs> it's a sign of So, So I need an Oprah impersonation. Oprah Winfrey? Oprah Winfrey. It's one line. As opposed to the other Oprah? It's, the yeah, other what Oprah? other Oprah is there? Yeah, there is an Oprah. Oprah? On, on um, Squad. We care about Oprah Winfrey. Okay, Mom. In fact, you have an Oprah story. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's true. I do have an Oprah story. Right. Yeah, my mom was on Oprah. Oh, yeah, it, it was <laughs> absurd. It was Oprah's favorite thing. Right? My mom wasn't on Oprah. My mom was on Oprah, and then she was on The Soup. <laughs> so, like, she's kind of working her way through the circuit of, right. of television. She was on The Soup because she had a freak-out moment on Oprah. And yeah. they put her face 
going, I'm insane. But she didn't say that. But that's how she looked. That's how she looked. Okay, so the line is, <laughs> the, the, the line we need is, uh, we're going to have so much fun. In, in your best Oprah impersonation. Oprah. We're going to have so much fun. You sound like an 80-year-old man. That's Oprah. I think that was decent. Uh, I think that would be. Thank you very much. Does she have a deep voice? No, but she always goes, we're gonna have so much fun! I remember I just used to cry a lot. You would cry a lot. Oh, all the time. Watching Oprah. Yeah, because Dr. Phil would get you going. Right. And then Oprah would come in with just like super positive, happy stories. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I rode to high school with three triplet girls. And we would stay at their house and watch Oprah after we got home from high school. Right. And I think, kind of held it out at arm's length, I think. You think so? I don't think I was formative. For, I think maybe it informed my view of my mom more you than anything. You were more worried about the triplets than... Oh, triplets. yeah, for sure. Okay. But the state of their soul. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Our show today was written, produced, and edited by me. It was mixed by Mark Owens at Resonate Recordings. They specialize in podcasts, and you can find them at ResonateRecordings.com. Special thanks again to Scott Slusher and Lachlan Coffee. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Chris Bennett designed our logos. Our theme song, We Have a Theme Song, is by Roman Candle. You can find them at RomanCandleMusic.com and on iTunes and pretty much everywhere else. Our soundtrack is from Dan Phelps. His music is at oceanographicrecords.bandcamp.com. Additional music comes from Roman Candle. Check out harbormedia.com for news and articles. Sign up for our newsletter, including a, a newsletter that we do every Friday called The Weekender. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Links to all that will be in our show notes. And hey, if you like what you're hearing here, do us a big favor. Leave us a review on iTunes. That helps a lot. And tell your friends about us. Share about us on social media. That sounds like a little thing. It sounds like a drop in the bucket. But actually, every little bit helps us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. I love Jeopardy. I think if you want to be a writer, that you need to love Jeopardy. You need to be just... Jeopardy and Scrabble. That's exactly true. That's precisely true. Those are the two favorite things, Scrabble and Jeopardy. Jeopardy is, you've got to to be curious. You have to be curious about everything. You can't assume anything. You have to be willing to look it up, find out what you don't know. And uh, that's a key part to being a writer.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.